Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've done more than 100 shows now. However, for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. My guest today is award-winning social entrepreneur Bas van Arbel. In 2013, Bas founded Fairphone, a company that is attempting to transform the way our smartphones are manufactured by reducing e-waste, sourcing conflict-free minerals and creating a product that consumers are encouraged to keep longer and which, importantly, they can repair themselves. It was an immediate hit, attracting 25,000 orders when it launched its first phone via a crowdfunding campaign. It's now sold over half a million phones and employs 150 staff. In 2018, Bas stepped back as CEO of the company, although he remains a non-executive board member, and subsequently founded De Clique, a circular startup that looks at ways of dealing with food waste. He's also author of Open Design Now. Bas, thank you very much for doing this. Lovely to be here, yeah. We're on Zoom, so it would be good to know where you are right now. I'm in Utrecht, which is my, my hometown. I live here. Uh, I'm in my, my own apartment. Apart from uh, yeah, working, uh, you know, Fairphone uh, uh, is in Amsterdam. The click is in Utrecht. You just mentioned it. Yeah. So I have, uh, yeah, it's, it's really nice. I have this local business around the corner and uh, I commute to Amsterdam uh, once in a while to, uh, to see what's happening there. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about Fairphone largely in this interview. And you're the founder of this fascinating company, but you're no longer CEO. You stepped away in, what, six, five, six years ago, 2018. Yeah. So what is your role in the company now? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm still on the boards. As a founder, you're always connected to the company you founded, obviously. But I'm, uh, I'm still also actively involved. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm actively involved in, involved in the operations of the company, but more on a strategic level and a non executive level, uh, which means also that you're, you're, you know, we're in close contact with the current executive boards and uh as a supervisor you uh you get to see all the stuff that's happening but you know from a distance which is nice because it's also uh you know it's 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 a, it's a tough company uh we're doing you know it's a tough job it's fantastic but it's also uh, it's been quite a journey mm. you know the exhaustion at some point also kicks in and uh, right now i get, i really get to enjoy the, the good things as well without the, knowing that the, the company's on fire while i'm on stage telling a nice story about you know the successes <laughs> so you know that that kind of dilemma i don't have anymore uh, is it a curious sensation letting other people run your baby oh yeah yeah no it's fantastic no i love it from the moment i stepped back and like i said it was quite a journey and i was uh you know apart from me not being the guy that is uh you know it's, it's, it's the best fit for scaling a company you know we're running a company at 20 million turnover you know, around 100 people yeah most of the focus was on operations and processes and really making a good phone up to the the point of customer support everything right so it's not just the phone and the product and uh, and the design and the manufacturing it's also having everything in place to support all those customers and uh, with that focus i i you know i'm a, i'm an innovator i'm a creative i like new things i like uh, i look into the future and that's where my passion is i would say i'm good at selling stuff that's not there yet and what Fairphone <laughs> needed is uh, to sell the, the phones that we were making and make them in a really, really good way. We might talk a bit about that shortly, I think. So to cut a long story short, for me, it was, uh, was a really a step that I needed to take, which was good for both the company and for me. And I love that I still have the opportunity to, to be involved, but more from a distance. So what's a typical day look like for you now? So with Fairphone, there's quite some things that I'm still involved in, in terms of management, in terms of shareholders. We just did an investment round uh, last year of, uh, of you know, attracting another 50 million, also with growth money. And uh, yeah, you need plans for that as well. I think you know, a lot of the focus of the company currently is on how to get that brand message to a wider audience. And that also means that you have to look at the brand and how to maybe change a bit the attraction of it to that bigger audience and uh, without losing the existing audience. And I think one of those things that I do get passionate about is that story of Fairphone. And I think that storytelling is still what I see I can, you know, I can really contribute to. So for me, that is part of what I'm still doing at Fairphone. Uh, apart from, you know, also the, uh, uh, the organizational stuff uh, and advisory and, and stuff that you, you deal with uh, when you're in a supervisory position. So that's part of what I'm doing. And apart from that, I'm, I, just, I just joined the board of my former art school, which I really love. 
I went into business not having a business background, right? I'm an engineer. I've done art school. I've done engineering, but never, you know, was really in a business or an organization or running an organization. I think the, you know, the, the closest I got to running like uh, a team was was my my intern uh, before I started uh, Fairphone. So you know, it was quite a big step. And I, you know, after having had that journey and all the experiences of setting up an organization in a commercial context, I also see that I'm really looking also for that artistic thinking that happens basically before something gets into a business model or you know has to be put into a business model and and that i get at art school i see i love the thinking in art schools and the big thinking and uh, you know anything is possible and also the creativity and i do think also that arts and culture what well, art has you know is part of culture and i think it's an important part of what needs to happen as well in terms of changes is is in in the way uh, we look at the world uh, even on sustainability on these levels i think art has a big role into to storytelling and making us think differently about our role in society in order to basically save ourselves because that's that's the point where we are listen to you i'm intrigued because i saw you speak at the Design Council's Design for Planet conference in Norwich last year. Had you been to Norwich before? No, never. No, I love Norwich it. Norwich is new to you. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a lovely time, yeah. Well, I thought you were excellent. But I've read since that you're terrified of public speaking. So is a situation like this making you nervous? You don't seem nervous. Being on stage, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I've always had a, had a very ambiguous relationship with uh, being on stage. I, I, I do have stage prayer, yeah, still. I still have it. But I love it. And I think what I love about it is you're able to tell the story and what you're passionate about. I wouldn't be able to, to stand there and tell a story about, you know, a, an, another product that is going to hit the market and needs to make success and, you know, purely from a commercial perspective. I get passionate about the things I do and I, I see that more and more I start sharing that. That does inspire people. I never thought that, you know, I'd reach that point in life where I'd be an inspiration to people on stage. But yeah, it took away also part of the stage fright that I have, but I still feel stressed when I go on stage. But I think it's also, it's, it's, it's became more and more a healthy kind of stress than... A healthy stress. Yeah, than staying awake for, uh, you know, a couple of days before going on stage. But uh, <laughs> no, for now it's, uh, I think I, I, I really like telling the story, especially about Fairphone and uh, yeah, and get people uh, to also uh, yeah think differently about about business because that's basically what I found out uh, setting up a company from a design perspective that business is also something you can design and think about and as designers we we can have an influence on how businesses are created as well. And is it true before you founded Fairphone that you didn't actually own a mobile phone? No, I didn't. No, yeah. I, well, yes, it's true. Yeah, no, I, I didn't own a phone. I didn't care a lot about phones to be honest, but. <laughs> You know, I love technology and what it can bring, but I think I, I, I was, uh, I was a bit afraid to be too connected at the time and, and to have like everybody bothering me uh, all the time. And I didn't miss it as well until the moment that they started tearing down the, the phone boots. <laughs> and then I had a problem because I also have two kids, right? <laughs> because, uh, uh, you know, getting in touch with your kids or emergencies and these kind of things. I had to ask people in the train, can I use your phone? And that, you know, that became, you know, a bit of a problem. And that, and that was at the time I was actually, we, we, I I think we already started the company and the first phone i had in my hand was was the fair you know the, the first even mobile phone i used was the fairphone one but i i didn't put a sim card in i just used it for uh you know as a music player and some other stuff <laughs> and then fairphone two I, I i really you know had also having you know being running a company like that and uh you know i had to yeah take that step so eventually fairphone 2 the second version you actually used as a mobile phone that was the first one i used as a mobile phone yes this is good to know <laughs> i mean can we talk about the anatomy of a typical mobile phone because they're quite mysterious things aren't they what are they made of bass i mean how are they manufactured because obviously you identified problems that fairphone sets out to solve um yes i'd like to look at the world through the eyes of a phone uh, to answer mm. that question right okay if you just look at how a phone is made, and I think as a designer, for me, that is, that is one of the most magical, also intriguing parts of production systems, is that everything basically you know, comes from the ground. And it all starts in a mine, either in Congo or Chile, Uganda, China, you know, all these minerals. And there's, there's, there's more than 60 minerals going into a phone, and all these minerals are going to be part of components. And these components, after they, these minerals go into refineries, and these components are being made by hundreds and hundreds of factories. And then in one factory, 
the assembly factory, uh, which is the, the factory that puts everything together, you can imagine over a thousand of these components come together and they make a phone out of that. And then you have all the software that comes with it, you know, that whole ecosystem of software and apps and making sure that that works well with the phone. And then um, that phone gets, uh, gets shipped to, uh, to us in a nice shiny box. When you have it in your hand, and that's, I think, the nice paradox, is like we have this really strong relationship with our phone. But it is a black box. And what fascinates me is that we are able to make something as complex as a phone by working together behind the scenes in a way that people are not even aware, you know, sometimes not aware that they're contributing to this very complex product. But we won't be able to make a phone as an individual. We have to work together and that economic system makes that happen. But the fact that we have that black box and have no idea what's happening behind the scene first because of the complexity second because we you know we've hidden technology also for uh, people because it's it's scary i think that that really makes me interested in also uh, yeah the question like like you said you know how our phones made and what goes into it and then i you know i'm not even talking about what you know what kind of problems that are connected to that what are the problems that are connected to that? The big problems about, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm giving you the picture of how the complexity mm. of a phone, because it's hundreds of factories involved, so hundreds and hundreds, and, and all these minerals. So you're basically talking about the whole world being involved into making a phone. If you look at how economic systems work, is they, they look for cheap labor, uh, and cheap labor uh, in countries which are, you know, with upcoming economies, a lot of, you know, the local and global problems are connected to that. It's, uh, you know, it's fair pricing, it's uh, working conditions. So you can imagine, for example, in the mines in Congo, you have conflicts uh, related to the mining of these minerals. That means, you know, same as blood diamonds, some people might, might have heard of, is, is that people make money from selling these minerals that we use for our mobile phones and other electronics in a conflict situation. So basically it's fueling uh, that conflict. And that is just one of the problems. You also have a lot of child labor. For example, cobalt uh, is, is a mineral being used for your battery. And it's also one of the minerals that fuels our energy transition because, you know, even in electric vehicles and, you know, a lot of things that we need for renewable energy, we need to store that energy, it goes into batteries and those batteries need these minerals. And the minerals uh, like cobalt, more than 40% is being mined in Congo or comes from Congo. And there's still 250,000 people that go into the ground with a shovel and no protection of which tens of thousands of children also connected to that. There have been like lawsuits to big companies like uh, Google, Apple, Tesla on uh, having child labor in the supply chain. And you can imagine it's very complex also for these companies to see, mm. to see what's happening because they, they are not the ones buying the stuff in these countries, but it is part of your supply chain. And, mm. and that is on the mineral level. And that goes not only Congo, but also Chile on copper. There's a lot of stuff going on there, uh, Peru. But then if you go into the factories, there's also problems there where uh, with working conditions, ridiculous overtime, low pay, uh, not having a living wage, but you know, a minimum wage, which people can't live from. Yeah, one of the biggest problems, I think, also is, is the way that phones have been designed. Um, so this is all you know, on the labor side and social, environmental uh, uh, elements in the production. But if you look at the design of a phone, it's designed in such a way that it's very, very hard to repair. You can't even change, uh, change the battery yourself. It's very expensive to have it changed. But the result that people use only their phones for uh, two years and then, yeah, two and a half years seems to be the average. Yeah, yeah. So you, you you can imagine you use your phone for two and a half years, uh, you know, you have a crack in your screen already. It's very you know it's very expensive to replace the screen, so you don't do that. Uh, your battery is running down, you know, because the the lifetime of a battery just is not forever. So the capacity goes down after a while. And then, uh, yeah, you get your new subscription from an operator or a carrier, uh, and they offer you a new shiny model with that. Uh, and the step is very easily made to toss that phone in the drawer with the rest of all the other phones that you have in your drawer. And this phone is full of expensive minerals. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, you've used cobalt, but gold, all sorts of things. Exactly. And only 15% of those phones get recycled for their uh, minerals. And it's connected also to the way we design phones even, because uh, if you can extend, it's very simple calculation. If you can extend the lifetime of a phone uh, with you know twice as long, you only need to produce half the amount of phones. You need half the amount of minerals. So it's not even the recycling that is, I think, the biggest issue. The biggest issue is the speed in which we change our products. Well, you've described your recycling as stupid. 
in the past. It is stupid. It is. It is. Be- Explain <laughs> why well, is it stupid. I, you know, it's it's the last <laughs> resort. It's like the last resort of doing something valuable still, which is you know if you think about it, it's it's basically waste management, right? Recycling. So after you've used everything for the longest of the longest, then recycling is probably the best option. But the process of recycling is just taking all this beautiful stuff we've created, like all these mini like capacitors and, and batteries and screens and all this stuff that the phone is made out of and, and, and all the energy and work that went into it because most of the work and most of the carbon footprint of a phone is in the production, not in the use. So the harm is already done when that phone is in your hand. And what do you do? You take that phone and toss it in the oven <laughs> to get some minerals out of that. That is recycling. So that is kind of stupid when you think about it, if you also have the alternative, which is using a phone longer. So I'm not saying that recycling itself is a stupid exercise, but the way and the speed we use recycling as the solution to all our problems, that I find a bit stupid because it's just, you know, we should focus on another matter and that is use products as long as possible, consume less. And the problem with that is consuming less or using less products because you don't eat a phone. I I always have a problem with consuming phones. If you use your products longer, it's also a challenge for your business. And I think that is where the real economic element uh, comes in, where there's a design flaw. It's not just you can't solve that part with just designing a phone that lasts longer because businesses keep pushing those phones into the market. Can we talk about, before we get into that, how Fairphone does things differently? You've identified the problem. So what did you do? Yeah, so on all these areas that I'm talking about, and obviously we also work on on recycling and getting uh, an urban mining, as they call it, right, to get minerals back. But we also acknowledge that we don't have enough minerals from recycled resources to fuel the energy, uh, you know, to to provide minerals for the energy transition and to build uh, the products that we need and the technology that we need. So a big part of that will come from the ground still. So what we do is we set up, for example, uh, the the Fair Cobalt Alliance, which is an alliance. We got also Tesla, Google, and these big guys on board to focus on improving the conditions in these countries and and also focusing on child labor-free mining, conflict-free mining. And that goes also for gold. You know, we use fair trade gold. We have uh, fair trade silver credits that we use in, in, our, in our system. I'm saying credits because it's very, you know, a phone is not a banana or a chocolate bar. You can't say, well, we take that gold and that silver and then we trace it all the way back to the phone. We put it in the phone and thereby we have that, you know, that silver and gold into the phone. Um, so our solutions are, are pragmatic, scalable, and looking at uh, all these minerals. And we, we currently look at more than 12 minerals. Right. So 12 of the 60 that go Exactly. So we take the most problematic ones. And uh, we, we started with, uh, you know, with coltan and, and cobalt and these problematic materials because we know there's a lot of conflict connected to it. And then we do two things. We focus on the, on the conditions under which they're mined. And on the same time, and that's the holistic view we have, we also know that mining is bad for the environment, so we use minerals that come from recycled resources. So that's on the material side. On the manufacturing side, we're the only one in the, in the industry that, um, that offers a living wage to their workers in the, in the factory. And that in itself is a big step. But um, you know, I, I can tell you, just as a, a couple of bucks more on, on a phone to do that. In a factory, which presumably is in China. Yeah. I mean, it can't be easy, can it, to just change the culture? No, it's very difficult. How do you go about doing that? Yeah, so you have to be pragmatic about these things. And, yeah. and we've tried different things. And we've been too exotic <laughs> in the things we've tried sometimes because we, we also set up a fund before. And from that fund, uh, so we put a premium in. So, so just to go back to the challenge we have there is that if you start paying premiums to people in a factory, if that factory has 30,000 employees and you start paying only the people working on Fairphones a certain amount of money more, the first question is, who are the ones working on Fairphones? You know, is it also the janitor? Is it also, you know, yeah. the, the management? Is it also, you know, so who, who is it? So you need to define a group. We define, you know, the people working on the lines for that. You also need to ask yourself, how much envy am I going to create in a factory mm. where they're going to, you know, see things like, oh, but this guy's got more pay than me and that you, you create unrest. So what you do is you come up with a total plan on living wage where you also involve other customers of that factory 
and ask them to also start doing living wage so that you can actually cover that whole factory. So we take an example position. So how we see it, and that's also how we see our impact and our theory of change is very simple. We show the problems. That's our campaigning elements. We started as a Mm. campaign. We really want to surface the problems that are connected to a certain area in the industry. We show that you can do things differently, like setting up uh, living wage mechanisms, uh, setting up the Fair Cobalt Alliance in the mines, using more recycled plastics in the phones than others do. And showing those innovations, we inspire and we actively also involve the industry into also using those kind of innovations. Right. And that is where the real skill is, because as a small phone company, we have the advantage to do these innovations. Yeah. But also, you know, the impact is smaller uh, if you look at our own supply chain when we get the others to join as well. It does show the pros and cons of globalization, doesn't it? I mean, to make these products, supply chains are necessarily complex. We couldn't do them without those supply chains. So, and I, I remember it reminds me very much of an interview I did with Thomas Twaits yeah. on this podcast a few years ago, where he attempted to make a, a toaster, a toaster yeah. by hand from scratch and he, he mined his own minerals. And essentially he uncovered kind of two things really. Um, the environmental damage that these products, everyday products can cause, but also the fact that as you point out, a single person can't possibly make these things. They're not craft items, are they? So are you trying to create a kind of ethical globalization or an ethical global market? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a a nice way of putting it. I think it's almost on a philosophical level. And that is that um, I I believe we're creating things. We're also destroying things, right? And that is a dilemma we have as human beings, because by being on this earth, we take and we give and we add and we take uh, whatever you want to see it. But it's like the world is not necessarily helped if we all commit suicide, right? Uh, you could say our, our footprint is a lot smaller. <laughs> so by being here, you have that impact. And we balance that as human beings. And we're very well of, of, of looking at these dilemmas uh, in the context of, of our own lives. When it gets to sustainability, it is about that, right? It is about the philosophical question almost, like how much do I uh, take and how much do I add to this world in order to have you know, future generations also be part of this world and, and survive even on this world. That thinking, I believe, has to be part of our economic system. Right now, the economic system is just, yeah, the only thing that drives the economic system is the financial ratio. And the weird thing is that economic system, if you just look back into how it got into existence, is basically social science. It's not math. We look at at an economic system as a mathematical, like almost physics exercise. You just calculate stuff and, and then prices determine everything and that's it. Whereas uh, it's a social construct. It's, it's the way we have agreed to work and to trade and everything around it. It's the question about value. So to get back to your question, what is it that we are doing? I think we're trying to achieve a way to navigate in the current economic system, because that is where a lot of the things fail, I think, in terms of the kind of utopian thoughts about how things should be. But we have a, we have a view on a, a more value-based economic system. And, and that takes a lot of compromises and small steps. And if you ask me, is fair for 100% fair? F- for sure not. We don't even pretend to be like 100% fair phone and everything is good because we are taking just steps towards that. And we know we will never reach 100% fair because the question of fairness is already a philosophical question, right? It's, you know, child labor was totally fine 100 years ago things change you know so it's really on how do we see the world and how do we want to operate in that and and fairphone is a platform to experiment to put more human values and also to surface also the human elements of production systems which have been dehumanized i hope you're enjoying the show this is just to let you know that the material matters fair will return to barge house oxo tower wharf this september from Wednesday the 18th to Saturday the 21st. Keen to exhibit? Do drop me a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. Also, if your brand is looking to reach the design world, there are a plethora of sponsorship opportunities. My partner William Knight and I would be delighted to hear from you. Right, on with the episode. As you allude to, you actually started out as a campaign in 2010, you weren't necessarily going to make a phone at all. No, 
it was it was kind of a bold statement. Uh, and and you were talking about Thomas Thwaites, and to be honest, mm. Thomas Thwaites has been the inspiration for me to do this this way. He's a very nice man as well. Oh, it's it's, it's great. You, you did an opening. You're not going to try well. and become a goat like him, though, are you? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not that kind of artist, to be honest. You know, I, I see myself something. Yeah, you know, I do see myself as an engineer, designer, artist. Uh, not a goat, but not a goat. <laughs> but the uh, no, I think it's wonderful the way he raises these kind of questions. Um, don't I think the big difference between how Thomas approached it and how how I want to approach this? I'm I'm a system designer or assistant artist or whatever you want to call it i look at what is the influence we can have on on the systems through what we do and for me uh, a company going into that economic system made sense because you know the, the the system that has most impact on our social and cultural and uh, uh, even even like geopolitical challenges that we have and the sustainability challenge, everything that that we're dealing with nowadays is 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 connected to that one system, that economic system that is 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 basically getting out of control. I think consumerism, you know, if it would be a religion, we we'd all be extremists at the time, right? I wanted to to be part of that system. So you, you're talking about we started as a campaign, but the thought was, what if we do what Thomas did, make a toaster from scratch, but really do that as part of the economic system. Yeah, so change the system from the inside yeah. is fundamentally what you're saying. Exactly, and for that, we needed a company because you, you, can't, you can't just sit from the sideline and say how things need to be done as a company if you're not a company. That's how, how we approached it. So was there a realization, Bas, you tell an anecdote about your son's Nintendo DS yeah. and how you couldn't repair it, which is a, very neat. But at the same time, I think your friend Peter van der Mark asked you to work on the campaign for uh, Netherlands Institute for Southern Africa for conflict minerals. So the professional and the personal kind of entwined at that moment? No, it's, it's but I think professional and personal have, have always been intertwined for me in terms like that. My, like the personal was, you know, I love opening up stuff and looking inside it and just asking the question, why are things made the way they are made? And not necessarily from a, like, uh, you know, what's wrong about it? Why do they do this to me? Or, you know, sometimes I do get agitated, like with the Nintendo. My son broke his Nintendo, was crying, and I wanted to fix it. But I was, you know, I, I had the wrong screwdriver, so I, I, I messed up the screws. Um, and, and there's no way to be able to open it anymore if, if you mess up the screws. People who, you know, who use screws know that. <laughs> but um, so I had to break it open to be able to fix it. And I, I just, you know, for me, that was kind of a... God, your son must have been apoplectic as you were breaking his Nintendo DS. Oh, he was, he was just, you know, it was, it was, it was <laughs> horror because we were going on holiday and the whole car was full of, oh. uh, you know, packed. And, 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 yeah, and, yeah. and he, he came to me with his broken Nintendo crying and I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> there goes my piece in the car, right? So I was really, really pissed about the whole situation. I couldn't fix it that time. And I, I knew I could fix it because I knew there was a loose connector somewhere. Um, so that agitation also, I think is more of a, it's, it's symbolic for something I, um, yeah, something I, 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 I have, I feel very closely to myself. And that is, that is a, uh, a quote that has been coined by the maker movement at the time. And that is, if you can't open it, you, you don't own it. And I think, you know, for me, one of the one of the important things in that is that um, uh, it, it's about you know it, it also says something about our relationship with technology and products in general. That um, we've you know it also says something about the, the 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 passive role that we have taken as consumers and the the passive role we've been given by the industry as consumers also uh, uh, with our products. And, and I believe, how can you have people take responsibility over the products that they, they use? How can you expect people to take responsibility if they don't have any connection or active role or even relationship with what's happening to make those products? And, and that, that, that Nintendo was symbolic for me. And, and that is because of, you know, and you go back to professional context, I've been working on open hardware and open source. And as you said, well, I, I was at that time writing the book also Open Design Now. You had an open source restaurant in Amsterdam, I think. Yeah, with a friend of my a friend, friend artist, Arne Hendricks. And, okay. and we downloaded the whole restaurant uh, from the internet to find out what people would do. So you have to take the step, <laughs> another step through. Yeah, side note, right. How does an open source restaurant work? Well, we were playing around with the thoughts, what happens with all this stuff that people put online. And this was an Instructables came up and all these maker movements. And this is, uh, you have to imagine, this is like 20 years ago. 
yeah, I think 20, 15, 15, 20 years ago. No, 20 years ago. And uh, this was at the moment that, that everybody started sharing like anything, right? How to make this, how to do that, how to you know, solve that, the recipes. And we just went to a website called instructables.com and, and we looked at each other and said, what, what if we open a restaurant by just downloading all this shit from people <laughs> and then you know, tell them that we've downloaded all this stuff and see how they respond to the fact that we are going to commercialize make money with that restaurant and serving food that they came up with because we wanted you know we were experimenting with with what happens in the digital you know the communities that yeah, were, yeah. were shaped and 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 the real how did they respond it was quite funny we did uh, cake contests with you know people from australia and, and china and and i think chile uh, women that put their uh was one guy there as well i think that they put their recipes online and we just started doing contests without them knowing it but we we opened up the comments box in the restaurant so that people could comment on their cakes and they got like hundreds and hundreds of comments on the cake like oh fantastic this and that and they didn't know what was happening to them, but it was I, I, people. People loved it. Uh, we even got uh, like Hilton at a certain point uh, asking us, you know, is this something we can invest in, and can we scale it to uh, you know larger experiment? It was also a thought-provoking experiment, and not something for the real world yet. And I think with Fairphone, when that came, uh, you know, the question from Peter, uh, and it was doing all these kinds of things. So you'd done all this, but. You'd no experience by your own admission. You'd no experience of running a company or making a phone. You had this completely blank slate. I mean, you started up with a crowdfunding campaign, but I think I'm right in saying you didn't actually use a crowdfunding site. So why why not? With Fairphone, we, we started, we already were running it as a campaign for two years, uh, raising awareness, having this crazy half kind of idea of making a phone and having the same thinking as, as with the open source communities, open hardware communities, to involve people to make that phone. It was more set up as a platform for people to add ideas and to look at how, you know, what we could do to make that phone. And the first ideas about you know, repairable phones and these kind of stuff uh, came up. But we didn't really... You know, we, we were looking at how do we make this sustainable in terms of economics, economically sustainable. And we, we were thinking about a, you know, a certification or a non-profit organization that would help companies doing that. And then I, you know, we just thought, but wait a minute. I think the, you know, the craziest idea uh, um, would be to do it ourselves. And, and we already in that time opened up a web, you know, website where we asked people if we'd be you know, making this product, would you be interested in it? And we already had like 20,000 people saying, well, if the Fairphone would be here, we'd be interested in it. Right, for, so you knew there was a potential market. We knew there was a potential, but it was important for us because everybody we worked, you know, we, we told that we were going to do this, even like the, the big operators, they told you, you're crazy. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to make a phone. Uh, and it's uh, and it's 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 a saturated market. You know, there's this, like, when, it, when it took all already, it's like a very, very mature market. And uh, nobody cares about a sustainable phone anyway. And we had the proof that that was the case. So we thought, well, you know, let's be strategically naive, I call it. And, and let's, let's just start. Let's make a phone. We got somebody so crazy enough to invest uh, a couple of hundred thousand to, uh, you know, uh, especially connected to the, to the foundation we, I was working at the time, Back Society. Uh, there were people there who really wanted to yeah, to, to see if we could pull this off. Uh, but we needed millions. <laughs> we needed millions uh, to, to start production. So that's why we said, okay, let's find a factory in China who has a phone already. Well, let's do some stuff in the supply chain, you know, change working conditions, uh, the, the minerals, but let's not mess around with the product itself. It's an existing phone. And that existing phone is going to be marketed as the Fairphone. Because you raised, with that crowdfunding, which you didn't launch on a crowdfunding site, which I'm still intrigued by, yeah. but you raised 7 million euros. Yeah. yeah. No, you knew that you had a, an audience who were interested, but that still must have come as a bit of a shock. It was, it was, it was a huge shock. I was, uh, you know, we, we just put a button on the website uh, and we knew there was some interest uh, already, but uh, within, within two months, we sold all 25,000 phones that we were going to produce. And the crazy thing is even the, the, the non-existing phones were being traded on eBay for double the price because we said we're not going to take any orders anymore because we're you know we, we need to go into production. But I can tell you, I mean, at that moment, I, I was I was looking at the bank account. Never made a phone before. Uh, I didn't. You know, never ran a company before. We were like at the time six people. We didn't know. We didn't really know what we were doing. 
I was I was really lying in bed with tears in my eyes. Like I'm going to, you know, I told my my partner at the time, I'm going to pay back uh, everybody their money because <laughs> you, you didn't think you could do it. No, it was just kind of it was really scary when you're when you're a designer. And all of a sudden, you're running a company and having millions and millions of money on your bank account. And uh, well, she 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 convinced me that it was a good idea to move forward. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I was about to to blow the whole thing up. Did you need a lot of convincing? I did. I mean, you, you want to have people around you that support you uh, on 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 that moment when you feel really scared about taking those steps, right? Yeah, I, I know. The next day, I was sitting on my, uh, <laughs> my in my bedroom uh, with my laptop on my uh, on my lap. And uh, I had to transfer like a million euros to the to the Chinese factory to start producing, and uh, I had everything uh, set up, and I, I was sweating to you know, to push that button to transfer the money, and then I uh, transferred, you know, I, I pushed the button finally to transfer the money. My kids were playing downstairs, and it was like really weird situation. But <laughs> on a Sunday, I know it, and then I, I transferred my money and said, eh, "You cannot transfer a million at once." So we didn't have a, like a, like a super professional bank account even and everything. So I had to I had to send the money in batches. To the factory in China, but you know, batch, you know, two hundred fifty thousand, one or four, two or four, three or four, 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 <laughs> and uh, yeah. So, so it was very, very amateuristic uh, in a way, but it was also it was also fantastic because we, you know, we we were flying. It was it was like all of a sudden we we were able to to put together a team from the moment that we really took that step. And it's not just me; it's like uh, you know, a couple of people that really believed in this, and we said we're going to do it. Uh, within one and a half years, we sold 60,000 phones. We had uh, 16 million turnover. We were a profitable company. We had 40, 50 people working at Fairphone right. at that time. And that was within one and a half years. Which is extraordinary. That, that first phone, it was an existing phone that was being made in a factory in China. You concentrated on their working practices and the minerals that you could control. You have described it as a shitty phone. And as we've discovered, you weren't actually using it as a phone yourself. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, why was it a shitty phone? Well, you know, it was uh, the first phone that we launched. And even though it was an existing phone uh, and we, yeah, we thought it was a solid phone, everything was working well. Uh, we had a lot of problems with the software and, and making sure that it was integrated with the Google services. Uh, you know, we had, you know, I, can, I can tell you, Google was not happy with us launching the phone with Google services on it. So we made a button on it that you could download very easily all the Google services, which even shipping the phones, just looking back at what happened is that we took all the emails addresses, which had google.com after, behind it. We, we put them, uh, you know, we shipped those at last because we were afraid that they were going to you know, <laughs> stop the whole operation. You know, there were errors with the phones at a certain point that if you with Deutsche Telekom, if you were calling another Deutsche Telekom Fairphone on that network, that you only heard like <laughs> Deutsche Telekom helped us to solve that at the last moment. It is an extremely complex product. And what we, I think, at the time didn't see is that even though the product was ready and was already there and was produced, it never hit a European market where all the conditions and the requirements of operators and all the, the way that that whole infrastructure works, yeah, you have, to, you have to tweak the phone specifically for those networks. Was there a danger you could have wrecked the whole idea with a poorly executed product? Yeah, yeah, it was super tough because you launch Fairphone, like right, a, a fair product, and then uh, your, your customer support is being blown away by all kinds of problems that the product has. Uh, and and yeah, you, you you get desperate because you think like this is not. You feel guilty also towards your customers, right? Because there's there's a whole there's it's like it was a crowdfunding campaign. It was all you know, it was friends and families and people people came to me as well. Like you know, boss, uh, it's a great idea, but you know, I can't use the phone. And we put so much effort into solving those issues. But if uh, at a certain point, if you also you know, setting up a company where at that time the fastest growing technology startup was Euro of Europe, uh, it comes also with all kinds of challenges. Yeah, you drown in everything that's that's coming at you. And I, I described it before as, you know, you're going up with a plane and you're flying. You're still building the plane, but you also don't know how to fly. It's a very difficult situation because any decision you make, you might just crash. And if you crash, you also let all these people down because... You know, on the other hand, we were being put on a pedestal as well by, by the sustainability industry. Like, wow, look at this. There's, there's somebody is doing something finally. Greenpeace awarded us being the, the greenest uh, consumer electronics company in, in the world. 
you know, above Apple and HP and all these big guys. So there was there was also a huge expectation of what we were doing, and at the same time, you have a yeah yeah you still need to get that product under under control, um, and uh, that's why we we invested a lot in Fairphone two in the next product. Yes, yes, which I think I'm right in saying was designed by Seymour Powell. So you bought the design yeah. in the house, and was that the first modular? Yeah, so that was the first modular. So the first one was really uh, focused on on what I said more as the social fairness element, and the repairability was uh, was not there yet, but it was a thought that we had because we couldn't make it, it's millions and millions of, of of investment to design a phone, and we didn't want to use that money for launching the first phone to. Uh, we didn't have the money. We didn't want to have any venture capital, you know, giving away a lot of the company. And, and to be honest, I don't think any venture capital would, would have invested in the, in the company. But uh, it was also a deliberate choice to do it through crowdfunding and, and keep it with the community. Um, but yeah, for the next model, one of the, th- one of the things we saw is that one of the uh, more important elements on sustainability is the ability to change your screen easily, to replace components easily. And uh, so that is where uh, where we got Sima Powell in and, all, and, you know, and, and some other design companies that helped us really design a phone from scratch, uh, which was groundbreaking because the whole phone was was set up in a way that was designed from the inside out instead of you know where normally you, you say these are the requirements it needs to be so thin this color material feel to it and then you know the engineers have to cramp everything inside that little box. But we said no, we wanted to start with a screen you can take off with that without using any screws, which in retrospect was a bad idea. Well, you have described it as being too ambitious, and I'm wondering... It was too ambitious, yeah, yeah, yeah because you don't... Well, you know, we wanted the phone to be, like, super repairable, like, like I could do it on stage with one hand, right? So I could take off the screen. Just looking back, I think, like, who needs that, right? So with Fairphone 3, we saw the problems also that arose with, with the ambition that we had with Fairphone 2, which is like a super modular, extremely modular, easy to repair phone. But because of that, uh, also expensive to make with all the connections. So that is more on the, on the cost side, but also uh, fragile. And that, that is a paradox, right? So you make a phone that should be durable, yes. longevity, <laughs> and then you have a fragile phone because of the, the complex design of it and the connectors that, that connect all these modules. So we had to go back to the drawing t- table for Fairphone 3. Fairphone 2 is definitely the most uh, modular, repairable phone that we made. But who needs that uh, if you only need to change your screen like one or twice in the whole lifetime of your phone? So that's when we immediately said, well, well let's, let's use screws again for the screen and, and use a, a flat cable to connect the phone instead of having... Uh, uh, like very exotic, uh, patented even uh, connectors that we developed. Fairphone two was uh, was was a huge step, but it all it, you know, defined the DNA basically of our repairable phones. So it was really useful, but again, it was not the phone that uh, that brought skill and trust also in terms of the product to to our uh, customers for the reason that that yeah that we also saw the the downside of some of the design decisions we made. You're up to Fairphone five now. Yeah, so we've learned a lot along the way. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've learned is that you know that you run a business also, right? You you really your, your ambitions on on both the product side and on the uh, sustainability side need to be in line with the growth that you can handle as a company. There are a lot of compromises that you need to make when you're in a in a, in a certain system. That operates in a certain way, like the economic system or financial system, whatever you want to call it, and and also uh, the industry. Like you, you, you want to have you know, there's there's all kinds of compromises on the phone. If you say, well, it's a bit thicker because you can change the battery. Uh, uh, the battery, for example, is is a bit smaller than uh, than other phones, so it, it lasts a, a bit less. I don't know, Fairphone Five battery because it's replaceable. Right. Uh, so, so these are like you know, the, these are all kind of design. So you, you, you're always having these kind of uh, um, compromises where you know, the, the, the paradigm for us is different. It's like designing from the inside out to repair it. Uh, making a waterproof repairable phone is really a challenge. This one is is quite uh, you know, has a good rating on, on 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 not letting water in, but you can't toss it in the water and and, and then leave it there for mm. an hour and get it back, and mm. it still works probably. <laughs> Right, but some of the you know the other you know phones that 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 uh, yeah that are not as repairable they they uh, you know it's easier to make them in a way that you read they're really waterproof. Um, so these these kind of things we've learned along the way, like where do we find that balance that we make a product <coughs> that the consumer 
the customer really likes, also is used to from an aesthetical point of view. Um, and, uh, uh, and on the other hand, also keep the values and, and, and our, our design pr principles at the core of the product. And I think that we found like in, in Fairphone 4 uh, already, but also in Fairphone 5, we fi really found that, uh, that sweet spot. So I was going to say 4 and 5 are, are, are the sweet spot. Yeah, you see, you yeah. see the reviews are good. Like with three, the reviews also on a, on a quality level were good, but the price was still too, you know, it was too steep compared to, to other models. Uh, and you see more and more we, we, with Fairphone, we, we are able to, to get to a competitive price point, uh, especially when you take into account that you, you know, the cost of ownership, as they call it, the, you know, the, the longer you use your phone, uh, the, you know, the, the less phones you have to buy as well, right? So, so it's also, you know, if you look at how long you can use, Use the phone. The 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 uh, and we we do take pride in that we not only make the phone repairable, so you can change parts easily and uh, uh, um, uh, and offer these 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 repairs at a, at a low price point, but or the sorry the the parts, uh, but also that we we support the phone for for uh, f five plus years, right? In terms of uh, of, of of software uh, support and everything from from Fairphone four on. So it sounds as if there've been some significant bumps and learnings, I guess you'd say, along the route. It sounds, Bas, and I hope you don't mind me asking you about this, but it sounds as if you had a, well, what can only be described as a nervous breakdown at, at one point. Mm -hmm. Would that be a fair thing to say? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, I was, was I, I mean, I, I was uh, having uh, panic attacks for, for a while already, and at a certain point, my, 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 my partner at the time had to... Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, she 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 took me to the 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 the, the crisis center of the mental health clinic to, to because I was you know I was just just lost. Um, that was you know with some some medication to sleep. I I got back on my feet again, but uh, uh, after I I did an investment round, got money into the company, I I had to get out of the company for a couple of months, and and it is really you know it's a, it's a super tough journey when you when you go into something like this and you see you know the expectations go higher and higher and higher uh, uh the 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 damage also that can happen when you don't succeed and that is might be in, just in your head but that's how it feels the damage that you do also in terms of like see it's not possible to make sustainable phones blah 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 uh, um, uh, it gets bigger and bigger if you feel as a company and also the, the stakeholders and 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 all the uh, responsibility everything just just gets bigger and bigger and i think uh, for me there was a wake-up call at a certain point like oh wait a minute you know, um, I, I need to take a bit more distance from from the company because I became also the company, and I think being an artist really helped there. Uh, I was right. able, to, yeah, I was able to 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 or having the artistic view on things helped there. I, I was able to take a step back and look at Fairphone and say, like, wait a minute, as as an entrepreneur, you can fail, right? Your company can fail, and as much as people say, well, you know, failing is learning, blah blah blah. Sure, but it, it feels like failing. I can tell you, if your company is is at the verge of bankruptcy. Um, but if you just look from a distance and see, you know, when we started the campaign and the amount of, you know, and the, and the, um, the journey itself and what we learned from it, and also me personally, what I've learned from it, uh, if you look at that as, as kind of an art project, <laughs> like Thomas Twaits and the toaster and finding out how the world works. No, but seriously, for me, it was like looking at the whole thing and even the company as like, you know, I, I learned how it is to be dictated by the system that you're trying to change. That is what's happening. That's why I, 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 I cracked, right? I, um, and it's like this guy going on a journey to change the system and it's like this Don Quixote kind of image I got. Like I'm, I'm being, yeah, I'm, I'm being put, you know, put down on my knees by that same financial system because, you know, I, I broke down because, uh, because of financial problems with the company all the time. And, you know, just being able to, to take a step back and look at it that way, I, I also uh, found it quite... Uh, insightful and uh, and i thought you know you hasn't you know the great thing about art is that it's uh, you know it's an individual expression that can't fill other things that you would have done differently in hindsight oh yeah sure yeah sure i've learned a lot um i've i've i think you know on a personal level i would have done it uh more like even on a on a board level i'm not saying that that we you know that i did it alone because i didn't there was a lot of people involved but i felt very alone at the uh, CEO level for the uh, as being the only board member, the only you know, formal responsible person for uh, uh, since the start of Fairphone. 
um, uh, financially, I would have, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I would have done things differently, like uh, get more investment into the company, create more uh, uh, breath to, to, to grow and focus on mid-long term instead of, all, you know, being cash managing all the time. And I think though, I've, I've took those things also to, to the new company, the Click, and, 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 you know, we set up the company with, with three people <laughs> in the board. Uh, and I, I, uh, you know, I was a CFO. Uh, I was going to say, yes, you were doing with the finance. Yeah, I was doing the finance for the company yeah. because I really wanted to be, in t- not that I love the finance, but I, well, I do like f- the, the financial uh, elements of the logic behind it. Because, and I wanted to be on top of that. I learned also that, that if, you un- if, you, if you know how to plan that, uh, then you can you can allow yourself to make, uh, to also plan your impact really well and, and your ambitions uh, um, uh, yeah, your ambitions and your and your financial position go ha- go hand in hand. And if you if you're able to plan that well, connected to each other, like this this is when I make impact. This is when I make more you know a step towards you know other stuff I want to do on sustainability or social elements, or whatever. Uh, um, uh, it gives more uh, uh, space also in your mind, and you don't have to do everything at once. And the clique is going back to your restaurant moment um oh, no, you're dealing yeah, with, yeah. with restaurant food waste right yeah yeah it's with food waste yeah yeah we collect we collect uh, food residues we, we don't call it waste in that sense but it's like cutting uh, you know, the, the kitchen kitchen uh, uh leftovers and uh and, st- and peels and stuff and coffee uh so we collect that all normally gets 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 um, goes to, to the incinerator we were talking about it like uh, recycling is stupid well here it is also very stupid people put, put, put it on one big pile they, they send it to the incinerator and get some energy out of it but all the nutrition everything that's in that food is gone and we grew that on the land and and we just burn it uh, so we collect it, we, we, we make compost out of it, uh, and, uh, or, you know, we get, get oil from the peels, uh, we grow mushrooms on the, uh, on the coffee residues. And then uh, from that, uh, products are grown and oil is used for other products. And we sell those products back to the restaurant. So they basically have food. You know, they're, they're, by going to a restaurant, you're also producing food. Uh, that's yeah. how we see it. Yeah, yeah, no, really interesting. I, I mean, the pandemic when restaurants were forced to close must have been quite tricky for you. I'm guessing. Yeah, there was there was shit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, it was was <laughs> there was there were, we, in that period. You just had we just had to uh, yeah we had to close down uh, the business basically, uh, put it on hibernation mode. Uh, but we survived. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Fairphone's been going what eleven years now, ten, eleven years. Can you? point to changes in the system that Fairphone has helped bring by this time? Oh yeah, sure. I, th- I think, I think, you know, you can't pinpoint uh, literally like this is what we've done and that's what happened because of our, uh, the way we, 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 we operate. Right. Um, so, well, I can on some certain areas, like for example, the Fair Cobalt Alliance, you know, implementing, getting these big guys on board, uh, making sure that, that it, it gets on the agenda also. Uh, but what we do is we, we also, we, you know, we, we push for laws that also facilitate this change, right? So we always work on different levels. We, like I said, we campaign, we show what's happening. We show the innovations like on repairability. We've been very soon. Uh, showing that repairability is the way forward to uh, extend the lifetime of a phone, right? Uh, even a replaceable battery to start with. And uh, one of the things I, I remember is I've sent a letter also to EU uh, commissioner, like, can you please put uh, uh, the design, uh, you know, they were setting up an eco-design directive for uh, household products. And I said, can you please put phones in there as well to make them part of that eco-design directive? So at least uh, they need to be repairable items and easily uh, accessible batteries and these kind of things. Um, and yeah, to my surprise, like, uh, you know, it's the EU, so it took a bit of time. But uh, uh, in the end, like uh, almost uh, 10 years later, eight years later, uh, uh, um, yeah, the, the law is in place now that uh, in the future, all phones need to, be have, need to have easily repairable batteries. And that is, I'm not saying that it's just my letter or it's just Fairphone, uh, but we've been part of that lobby. And I see that, that you know, being a company and being part of, of, Moving the needle uh, on on all those levels, uh, it's it's the, the impact of that is huge, and it's and even the, the the awareness around production, the awareness. I, I I really see also that in the last ten years, the conversation about the whole supply chain of electronics has changed, and I I do believe that we have a uh, have had a huge role 
in, uh, in making that supply chain and the value chain behind the scenes more visible. I mean, we need to, right? Because I mean, we're digging more and more of these minerals out of the earth. Exactly. The Guardian published a piece looking at some unpublished so far UN analysis that suggests that global extraction of raw materials is expected to increase by sixty percent by two thousand and sixty. Yeah, they're, they're, they're talking about they're talking about like deep sea mining for for God's sake, right? It's 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 really it's, it's ridiculous, and I think the big question we have to ask ourselves. Is uh, and and I don't see that in the industry yet, but I hope we will get there. Is do we need to produce all this stuff, right? Because you can put on a paper like the economy needs sixty percent uh, more of these minerals, blah blah blah, because we need growth. But n- n- it's very very difficult to have a conversation with uh, with the industry about like, listen, guys, how can we take responsibility in producing less? And every bit, every atom that we use uh, on technology needs infrastructure, uh, you know, data. All this stuff needs to be built. So even the data we use as consumers, customers, and we 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 store, and we think it's all endless. It's not. It's all. It's all. It all uses minerals. So we have to also ask ourselves, you know, how much of of this stuff do we really want to keep producing, and do we need need to do that in in, in this amount? And I think. Um, if we ask ourselves that question as well, uh, um, yeah, we look at things in a, in a different way. And I think also, you know, I think a very important element of that is that we need to establish, re-establish basically a more healthy relationship with the products we use. Talking about other business models, Fairphone has started a kind of rental model, which for people my age, you know, which is 50-something, you know, I remember when our first video was rented, our TV was rented. This is going back to um, the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, we're experimenting with it uh, because of that reason, because we, we, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what, and then we're also looking, is this something for the consumer market? Is the customer, you know, the, the, the bigger audience? Or is this, is this more for businesses interested? But yeah, I think, you know, one of the challenges that we, we, we take ourselves on is like, okay, so... Um, if we are going to align our business model with uh, uh, with our mission, then it makes sense uh, to have people, you know, to rent out our products, basically, uh, uh, have a surf- Fairphone as a service, we call it, uh, because that we were intrinsically motivated to have you keep that phone as long as possible, because it, it costs us money if we have to make a new phone for you. So, so, so it's just it's just also experimenting. And but the, but the big question is, are, are you know, do people want that? Yeah, I'm wondering, is this getting away from self repair? Do they send it to you to be repaired in that case? Yeah, so, the, so there are some nuts to crack there, obviously, right? So, so the, the self-repair is, is still important uh, because I think, you know, the, even the logistical movements and everything, it's, it's just easier to send you a, a, you know, put a new part and you replace it yourself. So it does still, you know, it, just, it, just st- it still has all these components in there. Uh, um, uh, and, and but it, it it also opens up a really nice opportunity for new thinking. Uh, for example, uh, we can offer people uh, lower uh, repair rates uh, for their screens, like lower or not, not, not repair, but like lower parts uh, uh, part rates for their screens. For example, if they if they don't break the screen for a long time. So if you can show that you <laughs> if, if you if you use your phone and uh, if you took care of your phone and uh, and 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 yeah didn't break it for a long time, we can offer you a screen uh, for 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 less, and and that incentivizes people. So it's you know it's really on that on the repair repair uh, um, we can we can also uh, yeah create incentives to 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 even be more caring towards that product. Yeah. Very good. Um, Bas, our time is essentially up. I've taken loads of your day up. Thank you so much. Um, final question. What's next for Fairphone? What's next for you? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. That's how I like to end it. <laughs> no, no, I, I got it. No. So what's, what's big? I mean, for Fairphone, it's, 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 it's quite, uh, it's quite easy in that sense that, um, uh, we've come at a point that we are able to, uh, uh, we have a great product. Uh, you see the reviews, um, you know, getting, getting, uh, getting really good, uh, good reviews. And, uh, it, it's a product that is ready for a bigger audience. Um, so for us, really reaching that bigger audience, uh, is also going to make more impact, uh, throughout the whole supply chain. Uh, so that is the next step that we, we are, that is a step that we're working on right now. Really, you know, scaling the company, uh, and scaling our, our customer base. In order to make more impact and uh, yeah, in that supply chain and on 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 yeah, the industry as a whole. For myself, 
I, I I love uh, what I'm doing at the moment, and it's it's more of a <clears throat> yeah and a, a role more in the background. I do that with the click. I do it with Fairphone. Uh, I love telling story the story on stage. So I I do you know as you started with uh, I, I I I'm scared to be on stage. Well, I can scare yourself. You like scaring yeah, I lo- yourself. I love no. I love I love doing that, and it's uh, I do that I do that with a lot of pleasure pleasure pleasure. So uh, I'm 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 yeah I'm, I I see that just telling telling about what we've experienced and what we've learned. And it's also valuable for others, and I don't do that just on on big stages, but also uh, uh, helping uh, uh, yeah helping companies uh, on a on a you know on a on a board level also to to think about what it means to have sustainability as a, a decision making factor in the company, and I think that's what we at Fairphone the most valuable thing I've always seen is that with every decision we make, and uh, we always uh, um, yeah. F- Try to embrace that dilemma of sustainability that with everything you're creating, you're also destroying. And then the decision can still be the same, but as long as you have that conversation in your organization, I think that's the most valuable step we can make. Very good. Very good. Well, it's been a complete joy to talk, Bas. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you too. If you're interested in purchasing a Fairphone following this podcast, then there's a link in the show notes feel completely free to use it or as Bas says hang on to your existing phone for a little longer it's up to you as ever to find other podcasts that I've done and to sign up to our newsletter go to materialmatters.design and there are images relating to the interviews on our Instagram page which is also materialmatters.design and it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash materialmatters For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive invites to various Material Matters events, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Right, I'll be taking a short break from the podcast, letting my voice recover, um, but I'll be back in April with an array of fascinating guests. See you then, and thanks very much for listening.